time for the 7th Avenue Project. Hello, everyone. It's the 7th Avenue Project. I'm Robert Polly, And today on our show, theater is archaeology, theater is a force for social change, theater is... What's the word? Uh, the word that comes to mind is the word rasquachi, which means really funky, you know, and I use that a lot. But it becomes our aesthetic, actually, rasquachismo. Yeah, there's the word. Theater is rasquachismo. That was Luis Valdez, the celebrated, can I say legendary, founder of El Teatro Campesino, the farm workers' theater. He's one of the fathers of the Chicano theater movement, which he helped launch almost 50 years ago. He's a well-known playwright and film director whose works include Zoot Suit, both the play and the movie, and La Bamba, the hit film about the life of singer Richie Valens. Well, today I'll be talking to Luis Valdez and his son Kinan, who's carrying on the family tradition, writing plays, making films, and helping to run El Teatro Campesino. Kinan is also a lecturer in theater arts at UC Santa Cruz, where he's currently directing his father's play Mummified Deer. It begins a two-week run this coming Friday, February 25th, it's about family secrets, forgotten wars, and the oh-so-slippery nature of identity. In the hour ahead, Luis and Kinan Valdez discuss the play, their own family history, and their lives in the theater, plus a scary clown story, just for good measure. Suddenly the clown saw me through the mirror, looking at him, and I froze. That's all ahead. Stick around. Okay, on with today's show, a conversation with Luis and Kinan Valdez. And we're going to start off here by discussing Luis's play, Mummified Deer. It's running for the next two weekends at UC Santa Cruz. And it's the tale of a family matriarch named Mama Chu and her clan, whose tangled inner relationships get at some of the complexity of Mexican and Chicano identity. The play's title and its central metaphor we're inspired by a newspaper story that Luis Valdez happened across in 1985. Just a little item, maybe two paragraphs at the most, about a woman that was taken to a hospital in Juarez uh, because uh, they thought she was suffering from cancer. There was a huge tumor in her stomach. Well, upon a further examination and x-rays, it discovered that she had no tumor. It was a mummified fetus that she'd been carrying for 60 years. That image of a dormant, unfinished past was still in the back of Luis's mind when he began wondering about some gaps in his own family records after his mother died in 1994. He was particularly interested in her Yaqui Indian ancestry. Of course, everybody that comes from the northern state of Sonora in Mexico always claims they're Yaquis. You know, I mean, it's, it's like <laughs> people saying they're Cherokee or something. It's just, it's just something that runs through, uh, through everybody. Uh, but uh, some people are more Yaqui than others, mm. as it turns out, and... Uh, and so with my mother uh, gone, I, I really uh, was sorry that I never asked her more relevant questions, digging into our family history and really pinning her down on some of the vague items that had surfaced over the years. So I was really moved to, uh, to go to Sonora, to go to the northern state in Mexico and explore on my own. Uh, 
And I went looking for uh, for information, birth certificates, uh, baptism certificates, anything having to do with uh, with my ancestors. And I discovered really that there was a, a, a layer of, of hidden historical truth in Mexico because no one was proud of it. They were ashamed of it, which was this genocidal war against the Yaquis, uh, the Indians, at the turn of the 19th century. When was this that you undertook this exploration? In 1999. 1999. Yeah, my mom died in 94. And five years later is when I embarked on on this play, and uh, and so it in some ways the play is about my family myths, those questions that have arisen over the years through the generations, my grandmothers especially, and then the historical record which was also hidden in in Sonora. Well, like I suppose a lot of people, I knew very little of this history uh, before I encountered your play. Um, and one incident I definitely didn't know about was uh, the enslavement of the Yaquis. What year was this when that happened, when the uh, Mexicans had defeated Yaqui resistors and actually shipped them down to the Yucatan to serve as slaves on plantations? This was at the turn of the century. Turn of the uh, century. The, the, the really serious oppression came around 1900, from 1900 to 1909. And in 1905, it hit a peak where the soldiers were actually literally going into villages and and killing all of the men, the young men that were of uh, warrior age, you know, and uh, enslaving the rest, the old people, young people. They took uh, children out of mother's arms. If the if the child looked slightly white, European, they, they were ripped off mother's hands. You know, they were taken away. And... Uh, uh, the dark children were kept with their mothers, and the the end result was that they were all rounded up, and uh, they were shipped then uh, by rail car, like animals, uh, like the Jews, really, later in, in World War II, to Mexico City, where they were sold on the auction block, and then shipped to Yucatan, where they worked as slaves in the Hennigan plantations. Eventually, these Yaquis uh, that revolted once they were in the Yucatan were also sent to Cuba, and from there to Morocco, and believe it or not, all the way to Germany, there I discovered that there were some Yaquis that died in concentration camps in World War II, along with the Jews. That's amazing. Isn't that amazing? I mean, these these are things that just make your skin crawl, you know, when you think about it. And this is very recent. I mean, uh, slavery of this type, open slavery. Were you aware of this when you went down to Sonora to start to investigate it, or is this all was this all new to you? It was all a big discovery for me. I had had heard rumors of the war, but I, not the detail. Uh huh. Eventually, I, uh, again through the research, I began to discover that it had been massive, and also that it had been buried. Essentially, that the Mexican government, for obvious reasons, didn't want it to get out, and. Um, the mass media at that time was not anything like today, so people just did not know, mm. and and the, the massacre occurred. And uh, again, it becomes incumbent then on writers and playwrights, you know, to, to, to deal with this issue. And uh, I know in the Chicano movement, we were all very proud to, to speak about our Aztec and Mayan heritage, because those are the glamorous indigenous cultures, right, that everybody right. knows about. Right. But actually, most of the people come from lesser well-known tribes, more humble tribes, including all the ones in the north that were related to their Apache cousins and, and, and the others of the Great Plains. And um, they were slaughtered uh, as well, you know. Mm -hmm. And so this is a story that uh, needed needed and still needs to get out in all its forms. And Mummified Deer was my response to it. Uh, mm -hmm. But no, it was a big discovery for me to pick up this piece of the history and... Uh, and believe it or not, I mean, I think that it's uh, 
it still remains hidden to a great extent uh, in Mexico. Kinan, were you part of, in any way, this uh, expedition, this exploration of family history? Uh, well, um, like most of my father's plays, I've, I've been around uh, their development, in fact, so almost to the point where they've become like additional siblings in the family. Mm-hmm. So we were there watching the development. With this particular piece, uh, I was privy to all the research that my father did. Uh, also participated in numerous readings in the development. So I'm very aware of the family connection and when he'd come back with these reports of our family history. And it was quite amazing for us to all realize that we had this, this history that had been uh, lost as well. <laughs> so in the play, we have a family uh, discovering its own history and its history dating back to the, the revolution and to the, the wars between the Yaquis and the uh, Mexican government, mm. discovering all kinds of things they, they didn't know about each other, that in fact nobody in, in the story is who they seem. Absolutely. You start unraveling, you, know, you pull a string and suddenly the whole family comes apart. You say, whoa. And, and I think that's there in every family to some extent. Don't pull too tight because you'll never know what you're uncovering here. You know? it, it, and um, in this case, I mean, it, it lends itself to the, the, the dramatic through line of the story. It's unraveling family. Well, what is the truth then about uh, Mama Chu and her mummified fetus? And where did all the kids come from? And so it was an intriguing, really, puzzle for me to try to put together. And uh, it took, uh, again, the research of the history, but also uh, a knowledge of my own family history in order to be able to uh, mm. to put it together in, the, in this form, the form of mummified deer. Mm. Um, do you have any family secrets that have come out in, in the process of exploring your own genealogy? Well, I think the family history, uh, the secrets are in my family history, and there are members of the family that still wonder about my maternal grandmother, who had uh, three husbands along the way. So her children came out of three different unions, you know, with three different men. And so each of them wonders about their background. My my maternal grandfather was was the last of her husbands. And uh, so I got to know him and my grandmother, of course, as my grandparents. But there had been other grandpa- grandfathers before him that my cousins uh, never got to meet and never got to know, and there are whispered stories about them. Uh-huh. And I know that uh, the middle one was um, was very fair, and that side of the family are uh, basically very fair-skinned uh-huh. uh, cousins. Uh-huh. But they don't know who their grandfather, they've never been able to connect, they've never been able to locate him. And then the first of my grandmother's uh, husbands, they married her off when she was 12, which was the custom then. Mm. So I don't blame her for not knowing her for a mm. husband. He was abusive, apparently. And the children born of that union, except for my the oldest, which was my uncle, uh, that I got to know, uh, he defended himself. But the, the women uh, suffered. And that uh, I see their photographs now, and I see these young women, who look very Indian, by the way, suffering. You see the suffering on their faces, and my heart goes out to them. And so I wanted to write about that. I wanted to write about that pain. And uh, and so in some ways, too, because this was dedicated to my mother and because I was, uh, well, I was uh, in my 50s when I wrote this play, I was able to identify with the treatment of women in my family and the story of Mama Chu and her daughters. And uh, so it was a big step that I took, really, as a playwright. And I enjoyed it very much because I found a freedom there that I'd never been able mm. to achieve with male characters, mm. you know. As males, we have to sort of sustain a front, mm. a, a macho front, and, and that extends to, to, 
two characters on the stage. But um, with uh, writing about women characters, it was much, much more liberating in an emotional sense. And mm. so consequently, I think this is probably uh, of my plays the most popular one uh, for women, and particularly middle-aged mm. women that mm. seem to relate to it. Yeah, the, the women are central. Most of the male figures are absent. I mean, they existed yeah. in the past, but yeah. <laughs> and a lot of them are bad, let's face it. I mean, mm-hmm. not all of them, but a lot of them are bad guys. Um, while we're on the subject of family secrets, um, Kenan, is there anything you'd like to ask your father? <laughs> well, <laughs> well, I, I know, mo- I know most of the, the family secrets, um, but I, the, the big revelation to me that came out was the fact that we actually had a, a relative who was um, a part of the Mexican circus. Oh. And so there's that uh, through line running through this play, which was, from a theatrical standpoint, part of one of the, the most exciting aspects. So that, that that rumor that had floated about for quite some time also points to the fact that uh, we've had a long legacy in the family of, of theatrical behavior. That's really interesting. So so there's a character in the play, Cosme Bravo, who's a clown, who was a clown in um, El Circo Azteca. Is that the yeah. name of the circus? The Aztec Circus, uh, Mexican Circus. Tell me a little bit, both you guys, about that world, the, the Mexican Circus, and this character in the play. Well, the idea of the circus, I mean, again, you were talking about a Mexican circus, so it's it's uh, a little bit different than what you might imagine in an American circus, because it's, uh, it's born out of the same poverty, it's born out of the same conditions, and I'll never forget, uh, the first time I went to Mexico, really, literally, I wasn't born, I was born in California, so... I went shortly after my graduation from high school with some friends. Actually, we went to get late, but then <laughs> I think I can say that, right? But that, that's the way it was then. And and uh, so, but the thing is that we were making our journey. We're going our passage to to our adulthood. Uh, but uh, I remember uh, crossing the border and uh, and going into Tijuana. And at that time, uh, it was a rough passage because you crossed the border and then you you went through a, a road. Uh, across the Tijuana River, and and there were all kinds of shanty shacks, and uh, it was really not the best impression to take from Mexico. They changed all of that. There's a big shopping center there now mm-hmm. and everything. But but at that time, it was uh, a very poor impression of Mexico. But as we were heading into downtown, uh, I saw this car come out of the, the barrio, and uh, it was on top of it were these clowns. They were wearing really ragged clothes, and but the makeup... Uh, and they were sitting on the fenders, and, and the car itself wasn't in very good shape. But they were beating the drum and blowing the trumpet and announcing the Circo Azteca. And, and so uh, the word that comes to mind is the word rascuachi, which means really funky. You know, And I use that a lot to describe <laughs> it. It becomes our aesthetic, actually, mm. rascuachismo, mm. with the teatro years later. But, uh, but it's what a rascuachi circus. And, and they were announcing teatro, uh, Circo Azteca. And so that stuck in my mind. And I thought when I going to write the play, I'm going to put El Circo Azteca uh, into the play. Now, what Kinan says is very true, that my aunt, one of my aunts, uh, my mother's sisters, half-sisters, uh, ran away to join the circus, and uh, and she was a trapeze artist. And was she called La Mariposa? La Mariposa, uh-huh, exactly. She just was called like, the butterfly. Uh, just like the character um, Agustina. Yeah, just like Agustina, and Agustina... Another family name, and my aunt was called Agustina, a separate one, but uh, I'm combining all these family, see, for me, they have meaning, so I put them, the audience may not know, but to me, I put them in there because uh, I'm writing about my family, although not, not in a direct literal sense, invoking these images, but uh, 
Uh, also, I have a story. One of the, I, I talked to uh, the cast, actually. In, in, Kinan invited me to one of the rehearsals just to speak about the play. And one of the students asked me, uh, what's his business about uh, Cosme Bravo, you know? And mm-hmm. is there something there about that you have against clowns? <laughs> because <laughs> Cosme Bravo turns out to be the villain, you know? And, and actually, I have. And what happened is that it relates back to something from my childhood when I was five, thereabouts. Uh, a traveling circus came to town in this little town where we're living in the San Joaquin Valley. And they set up tents uh, in our town right across the street. Actually, kitty corner from where we used to live, and there was an empty lot, and they set up there. And so I was five or six, and and one evening when they were ready to open, uh, I sneaked over there. You know, it was not far from my house. I went over there, and I found this tent, a small little tent, with a flap slightly opened. And I looked in, and there was a clown sitting, putting on his makeup, and he had his back to me, and he was putting on this intricate face, you know, the white face and the the red lips and the nose. and I mean, it was just putting on his wig. It was a magical transformation. I was, I was stunned. I stood there looking in the flap, watching him become this clown. And I don't know how long I was watching. It seemed to be like an eternity because it was a ritual to me. When suddenly the clown saw me through the mirror looking at him. And I froze. And then he turned around and said, Hey, you kid, get the F out of here. <laughs> and he he swung his boot at me. <laughs> and I ran. I could feel the whoosh, you know, as it passed behind my, my butt. And uh, and scared the bejesus out of me. And I, I said, whoa, you know. And that stuck with me. One, the wonder of the clown, which I love. I love the circus but also the fright that this particular clown gave me. And so Cosme Bravo is my revenge <laughs> on that clown that set me going, you know, way back when. Oh, that's an amazing story. Um, well, you know, the style of this play and some of your others, um, though the subject matter is very serious and there's a lot of tragedy, is knockabout farce too, right? I mean, is the influence of the circus there? I know you also have a background with the San Francisco Mime Troupe, and so that's Commedia dell'arte, but is that kind of circus slash theater, is that part of your aesthetic? Uh, the physicalization, yeah, is very uh-huh. much a part of what I do. Uh, uh, the physicalized theater is, is is what I love, and um, that doesn't mean that I don't love the other levels. Mm-hmm. The one thing that, uh, I'm also a filmmaker, so the one thing that I've been able to separate in my work is the naturalistic element, I think, more naturally belongs in, in film. I mm-hmm. mean, you can get more realistic, more naturalistic right. on film than you can in the theater. Mm. In the theater, it's always a stretch to be that real. But it, it, uh, it dis- uh, with certain dismay, I look at the American theater and see how hung up they are still on naturalism, mm-hmm. right? They, they mm-hmm. refuse to leave the 1920s, you know, they're still, or even the turn <laughs> of the century, they're stuck. On realistic it's like theater, it was but Eugene I'm, O'Neill, huh? <laughs> even before, yeah. But the yeah, uh, the thing is with me is that uh, I practice what I call theater the sphere, and so I like to work uh, all of the levels. And uh, stylistically, one of the things that uh, I enjoy then is being able to maintain not just the dramatic but also the artistic tension in a piece by switching styles, all within a narrative line that allows it, if possible. It isn't. It isn't uh, arbitrary. 
we go to the circus because it's a memory of a circus, mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. being in the circus gives us the opportunity to get physical. Mm. Or we go to a song because it, it, it's called for in the action mm. in a very Brechtian sense. Uh, I hesitate to call myself Brechtian, but, uh, but I was very pleased uh, and enjoyed very much what Brecht had gave, you know, um, by his contribution to the theater. So uh, in a political sense, in an artistic sense, uh, I, I continue to, to draw inspiration from his work. But in any case, um, music, then song, um, physicalized theater, but also realistic scenes. And, uh, and the way I like to see a theater, the sphere, because I approach it from many different uh, angles mm. and many different perspectives. So Mummified Deer is theater, the sphere, with many, many different styles. The, one of the surprising things I think people come away from this play is realizing how how much humor is actually involved in the telling of this particular tale. And I think, one, it, it comes out of the actual culture of the family itself that's present, the Mamachu Flores clan, but also in this aesthetic or this notion about the power of laughter being liber- a way of achieving a type of liberation, particularly from poverty or from things that, that, that uh, keep you down. And I think that's something that's very much present in the work of my father. The power of laughter is enormous and amazing to overcome all types of obstacles. Kenan, we just heard the story of your father, Luis, observing this clown, putting on his makeup, and then getting yelled at by the clown. (laughs) You grew up in the theater, really. I mean, you grew up with the theater happening around you. I did. Quite literally, I remember uh, some of my earliest memories are, are sitting on a family circus blanket, uh, and uh, on the edge of the stage, watching both my p- parents perform, waiting for my cue to jump on stage, and so I, I traveled uh, as that was a in young, Paris in Paris. That yeah. was in Paris in nineteen seventy six. Wow. And so I traveled with with the Teatro Campesino with my parents on the road, growing up in the theater. So I have half my memories are all in, in related in some fashion to either watching or creating theater. Now I, I'm I'm so curious to know what that must be like. Is that confusing to have? So much of your life be based in, in fiction, in the creation of stories. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's it's uh, it's very interesting the experience. I, I know that there's a lot of people gravitate towards holidays as a way to transcend the mundane experience mm-hmm, of everyday mm-hmm, life. Mm-hmm. So, for instance, Halloween and Christmas and mm-hmm, all of these mm-hmm. uh, sort of holidays have have become very difficult for me to celebrate because my entire life is about transcending the mundane on yeah, a regular basis. Yeah. Yeah. And uh but it's 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 one of those those worlds when you grow up with the power of story it just becomes second nature to you. And so that becomes part of the mission is is sharing these particular stories and passing I, them on. I think a word needs to be said here about Kinan and uh where Kinan came from literally is from his mother, you know. And um, his mother uh, was uh, joined the teatro, uh, her name is Lupe, Lupe Trujillo Valdez. She joined the teatro in 1968. Um, we were in Del Rey, southeast of Fresno at the time, and uh, and really was the beginning of the Chicano movement, so to speak. And she joined for political reasons. She, she, she liked uh, the political aspect, still does. She's very political, always has been. Uh, but uh, labor, you know, in terms of labor, her father was a, a labor activist, and so all of that lives in her. But she, she also had a very strong mother, and so she is the strong mother. And um, so she combined her politics with her uh, with her love of motherhood in that sense and uh, and raised a family, you know, in, in partnership with me. We've been mm-hmm. married uh, since 1969, so we're into our 
42nd year. You know? how, how many kids? Three. Three sons. All in theater? All of them. <laughs> yeah. Playwrights, uh, directors, uh, cinematographers, uh, you know, uh, musicians, all three of them. And um, they are extensions, really, of, of what we believe. And uh, I... I think we all parents really hesitate to involve their children in their business, but when it happens as organically as it has in our family, it's it's a lot more natural. Mm. You know, I don't I don't worry about their livelihood. I know they they'll take care of that. Uh, I'm more interested in really where they want to take it, and and uh, not just the teatro campesino, but also their own personal careers. And because uh, I think they they all have notable careers already, and. Uh, and and they're heading into a future that uh, needs to be created with everyone else, and I think that the need for the work that we do as a, as a family and as a theater company uh, continues unabated. You know, we we need we need to keep we doing what we do because uh, uh, so much of the other the negative stuff keeps happening also. You know, mm. and uh, I just want to jump in. The the interesting thing for me is the fact that the entire Valdez clan is expressive and our, our artists. So it's not just my father's children, but also all our cousins and, and relatives for generations now have explored theater, music, art as a means both to survive but but to be expressive. So mm. it's it's we're just just a small fraction of this entire generation of mm. people that are, are performers in some fashion. I should say that you you write and create your own material too, but in this case you're directing your dad Luis Valdez's play. Is, when was the first time you directed one of his plays? Oh, uh, well, uh, that, um, let's see, I was 12. So, okay. I was 12, and I directed one of my father's one-act plays. Really? With a, a group of young students. I'd been in a, a performance of uh, his one-act piece yeah, called tell about Soldado, Soldado Raso. Yeah, and, uh, and so we were invited to perform uh, at honoring the, the Chicano Moratorium against the Vietnam War as a commemoration. And so we organized this group, uh, some of my, my brothers and cousins and all their friends in this group of young people who grew up needed a director for the performance. And because I had experience with the play, I came in and I, I staged it uh, with these, with these young, young students. Mm. And I think a lot of people might be intimidated to direct their father's creation, or they might be worried that their father would take over. <laughs> or, <laughs> did you guys ever have any problems with that, or was this just really natural for you no i it's i it's an honor for me to direct my father's work mm. actually and i i think it might be difficult for some people to worry about this idea of 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 growing up in a shadow mm. but i see my mm. life's work as an extension of the work that he started mm. i think part of my vision here is is longer than just one person it's multiple generations um, in the making here, and mm. so I'm I'm part of the bridge. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I also trust uh, Kinan's instincts as a as a director. I I recognize, you know, that he's an extension in that sense. You know, so I, I don't need to impose on him. He, he it comes out of him. And mm. I'm, with all my sons, really, I'm very proud to see what they're doing. I try to give them guidance if they ask for it, but uh, mm. they don't usually ask for it. They just go ahead and do mm -hmm. what they do. I have one memory of Kinan that same year when he was twelve. Um, we went to New York. Uh, we took the group uh, to perform at the Public Theater in New York, and uh, Kinan at that time was playing the uh, the younger brother, the Canalito, in Soldado Raso, the same play that he'd that he had um, directed. But in this case, he was with adults, and so he was doing the little brother. 
And in the audience uh, was Joe Papp, you know, the the, uh, the producer the, who was running creator the of the public theater. theater. Yeah, exactly. And so after the show, he he specifically came forward and wanted to talk to Kinan. Ah. And so uh, they sat in the corner on the bench, and I was trying to overhear, you know, what he was saying. But he was maybe Kinan can can add to this. But uh, <laughs> it seemed to me that he was giving some very positive notes about Kinan's uh, performance. And he was saying that he was uh, very believable and that he held his own and that he hoped that he would continue to work in the theater, as far as I could hear. And uh, I just let them talk. But it, it's important, I think, that uh, that Joe Papp was willing to do that and that, uh, that he acknowledged uh, my son in that regard. I'm very happy about that. Mm, what yeah. did he say to you? Dude? The moment I know that I remember is... Um because the the family dinner that's staged in the sequence was had involved food that was pantomimed, and I think he was mm-hmm. appreciative of how I, I made this desire for these tamales <laughs> palpable and real when there was no tamales but present. But that's easy to do with tamales. Yeah, it is exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so a lot of experience to to draw from. Another experience, actually, that uh, about Kinan is uh, people who have seen La Bamba uh, may recognize him from uh, the opening scene. There's a kid uh, playing basketball, um, and uh, he gets crushed by a falling aeroplane, and, and that part was played by Kinan. Oh, I'll have and to rewatch the movie. This is your movie about Richie Valens. Yeah, it's called La Bamba. And I'll never forget that uh, when we shot it that day, it was very, very hot. I mean, we shot it in Los Angeles in Pacoima, in the actual school, actually, where the accident happened. And uh, it was 100 and some degrees, and it was terrible. But uh, so the the asphalt of the basketball court where we were shooting was very hot. It was like a griddle. And Kinan had to fall. He had to fall with the camera on him. You know, we're up on a ladder. We're up on a on a, on a lift and, and shooting down at him. And so he kept falling onto the pavement, and it was too hot, and he was really suffering. And so we did several takes, and he still didn't get it. You know, I wanted a real scream of fright, you know, of seeing this airplane falling on him. And so uh, what I did uh, is I pulled a director's ruse on him. I went up to him and I said, Kenan, if you don't do it this next time, I'll have to take the part away from you. (laughs) So he looked up into the camera and he screamed. (laughs) And that's what went into the movie. So it was a great moment. And uh, he he underwent the the trauma of an actor, you know. But uh, that's Kenan at 13. Mm. acting uh, the part of Richie Valens' mm-hmm. friend. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I'm curious to know the reaction of various kinds of audiences to this play, Mummified Deer. Uh, it's about Mexican history. It's about Chicano history. Um, in fact, I'm reminded of, a, um, of a, a statement that one of the characters makes when they discover more about their, their family history. It says, we put on masks when we crossed the border. We left an ugly revolution behind. Is there a difference in the way you think uh, that Latino audiences react to this uh, as opposed to other audiences, Anglo audiences, other audiences? Have you had that experience? I think the play is universal. Uh-huh. I think because at its root it's about a family that's mm-hmm. trying to discover its own roots, but at the same time they're they're dealing with the real threat of losing their uh, matriarch, that people relate first and foremost on that level to that vas- basic emotional threat that the family faces mm-hmm. of losing their mother. Mm. And I think because, if I may say, is, is that a lot, of, a lot of the energy surrounding this play came from, from the months that, that we were afraid of losing my grandmother, my, oh. my father's mother. Oh. It's, it's built into the fabric of the play, that, that fear that a family faces when they're about to lose a loved one mm. is something that, that, that is very universal. Everybody's mm. going to face that. Mm-hmm. 
And so not only in this play do you see some of the historical legacy of and historical moments that have um, shaped this family, but in, in the present, well, in the 1969 present version of this world, you see this family grappling with with these issues. And some of the images, in fact, come directly from from our family history about 1994 and the loss of my grandmother. Mm. Mm. I think, I mean, again, in terms of family strains, my mother, in that sense, was definitely the, the root of our acting uh, instinct. She was an actor, and, and she acted all the way into the last breath. Her death was uh, dramatic. I mean, she, she had no family around her in the hospital, but in Salinas, but uh, it was dramatic. I mean, the way she grabbed her hands and... She was unconscious, but uh, she came out of her consciousness and took off like a rocket. It was um, an amazing thing. And so I worked that moment into the last moment of the play. It's there, How About Much You Dies. Mm. And, uh, but the thing is that uh, she was the dramatist. She was the, the actor in the sense that my father was the humorist. The sense of humor came from my dad, you know. So we're all combinations, you know, mm. of, our, of, our, of our parents. But uh, in that sense... Uh, my mom was the actor, and so that that was important, I think, right, to capture that and uh, in the play. Uh, well, you you raise a question. Um, what would you say is the difference between being dramatic in a situation like your mother on her deathbed and, and not being dramatic? Are, aren't we always acting in some way? Absolutely. But but there was a difference. I think the question is demonstrativeness. You know, <laughs> what you're talking about, uh-huh. whether you demonstrate or not, mm-hmm. and. Uh, some people are just more demonstrative, you mm-hmm. know, wh- whether it's about love or hate or uh, they just like to express it. They like to put it out there where everybody can see it. And other people don't. They mm-hmm. keep it to themselves. Mm-hmm. They may be thinking it. They may be feeling it. But they're deadpanning it, you know. Mm-hmm. They, and there are cultures that actually encourage deadpanning as opposed to sure. demonstrativeness. Yes. Right? And so that's, that's an important distinction between types of humans and, and, and the cultural differences, you know, from place to place. Mm. In putting on yet another production of this play, Kenan, uh, are you discovering new dimensions of it? Is, is is there something that's new for you this time around? Well, it's I th- I think it's a perfect fit for UC Santa Cruz. Um, one of the things that's shaping this production is the idea always to provide students with more educational opportunities. And so, even though the play has was originally written for eleven actors uh, and can be done with twelve, we have added in this particular version, uh, a small circus ensemble to explore some more of those uh, circus elements in the the play itself. So we've rooted this particular circus in the Mexican carpa tradition. And uh, there's a, a Mexican clown type called a pelado, which means literally peeled, the peeled one. Uh, and the most famous pelado of all is, is uh Cantinflas. Mm, and actor, so there'll, yeah. there'll be sort of a, a circus of pelados running in and around and through the circus sequences of Mummified Deer. Well, and so that's actually something that's new to this uh, production. Well, why are they called pelados? Why, why the peeled one? <laughs> well, because they've been stripped, essentially, stripped, uh, stripped of, of everything. You know, they're poor. Uh, so, uh, and also they do it with rags. And so uh, they're, they're cir- the circus is born of rags. Kind of like the Teatro Campesino was born of rags, the same instinct. But the the thing is that um, the pelado politically is is someone who's had everything taken away from him, mm. his land, his money, his you know whatever. And uh, so it makes sense. And 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 so uh, 
when people say, well, there goes a peeled one, that means there goes a poor guy. He's, he's, he's lost his shirt, mm-hmm. right? <laughs> and, mm-hmm. and so that, that sentiment is understood, I think, uh, universally around the world. There are a lot of pelados in the world. Oh, yeah. Uh, and, and the pelados in the United States are pro- perhaps more, more prosperous, you know, as uh, uh, Will Rogers said, you know, the, uh, during the Depression, he said Americans are the only country on earth that uh, ever went to the poorhouse in automobiles, you know, I mean, it was, which is true. It was true back in the 30s. So now, I mean, to be poor in the United States is different than to be poor in, in other parts. But uh, the pelado concept is uh, is also very universal. And I, I think that, again, what's interesting about the theater is that you can actually begin to interchange cultural values. And the American theater has gradually, gradually begun to deal with the, the diversity of its own culture, you know, in, in terms of the immigrant experience. Uh, uh, I think just by osmosis, you know, we're all part Jewish because mm. we've been given that through mm. the theater, but also Anglo and, and African-American and what have you, you know, we're all Africans. But uh, with uh, the Teatro Chicano, we're getting some of the Mexican culture coming through, uh, obviously in a bilingual fashion here because the play is written largely in English. Uh, and and the idea is to try to bridge that gap that exists in that fictitious border, you know, across the mm. the uh, the desert uh, that separates two peoples that are very much alike, a lot more alike than people ultimately realize, you know. And um, so it speaks to ongoing problems that we have with misunderstandings about immigration and what have you. Uh, if you ask me, quite frankly, I think the border should be completely opened. I, I, I don't think there should be a border. There should be some stops so people know who's coming and going the way they used to be. I have records from my family when people would come from Mexico, report at the border station, and say how long they were going to be there, and, and then go in about their business. And they would also, when they exited, they would tell. So that's how we know how my relatives kept going back and forth between northern Mexico and Arizona, for instance. That can't happen anymore. And what's happened is quite the reverse. We put up this wall, and people fear desperately that somehow if the wall is taken down, we'll be invaded by all these hordes that will come and never leave. And that's not the case at all. I think that inevitably uh, the U.S. and Mexico will come to understand each other because they're neighbors. Historically, no one's going anywhere. They're neighbors, and they're going to be intermarriages. Uh, Latinos, you know, male and female are intermarrying like crazy, you know. Oh, my friend, but you you underestimate the political desirability of xenophobia. Just yeah. how no, useful true. that is. <laughs> oh, it's fun, isn't it? <laughs> no, well, actually, it's it, it. If it weren't for xenophobia, I wouldn't be able to write this play. <laughs> <laughs> I want to get to one of the other the other themes of the uh, the play. We've touched on it a lot, um, and it is identity. This simple notion of a Latino identity or a Chicano identity or Mexican identity, when in fact, as your characters discover, no one is who they think they are. And it's so much more complicated. You also made a very interesting comment a few years ago in an interview. You said that something like, this issue of identity is very deep and very shallow. <laughs> Do you remember saying that? Well, it's deep in if you go after the truth. It's shallow in terms of the way that people respond to it, right? And we talk a lot about black and white, for instance, and, and really nothing could be farther from the truth. Nothing is absolutely white nor absolutely black. You know, And, and what about all the colors in between, right? Uh, it's a spectrum. Uh, 
even among so-called white people, it's a spectrum. Certainly among black people, it's a spectrum. And I, we persist in in defining things as in black and white, and and that's not that certainly doesn't work for Chicanos. I'll tell you because we come in all colors. It doesn't work for so-called Hispanics because we come in all colors. So, but they've created a, a category called Hispanic in which they're confusing race with ethnicity, which is even more confusing. So, uh, if we want to talk about cultural values, let's talk about cultural values. You know that I think that's a legitimate. And in some ways, a much more concrete way to to address the issue, uh, because that that addresses human behavior and values. Uh, race is uh, is ultimately a, a real confounding uh, question. You know, mm. certainly Mexicans uh, can lay claim to just about every race. Mm. We're a real melting pot. Mm. Uh, and maybe that frightens people to say, oh, man, if we mix everybody, we're going to look like Mexicans. <laughs> but but uh, the fact is that um, there was a whole Indian population here also way before the coming of Europeans. And uh, that's more like my people. And so I, I, I tried to, although I'm not saying all of my people, I, I, I don't deny the fact that uh, I'm part European through the Spanish. I, I, there's no question in my mind. Hmm. Talking about the identity, I consider myself to be a product of the Chicano movement. In fact, my name, Kinan, means, um, it's a Mayan name, means solar energy. That represents a nice little transformation over time because the notion that a Chicano has this indigenous root or indigenous roots has always been interpreted as, as being related to the Aztec or the Maya. And I think what this play does is it opens that up to a much wider spectrum of indigenous possibilities in terms of roots. And that's one of the things that's transformed over time. Now, having done this particular play over time, my name has different significance to me now, knowing the fact that I have Yaqui ancestry, but that my Yaqui ancestors were transported to the Yucatan into Mayan territory links those two worlds for me in this particular name, mm. Kinan, which means solar energy. Mm. And so it, it just has a different poetic significance to me. You know, one question that I found myself asking in experiencing this play, um, as it digs deeper and deeper into history, into um, personalities, into the origins of, of a family, where do you stop? And one possible answer I came to by following this play to its end is, you know, when looking for an origin, it seems like we usually stop with some original trauma, with some some wound? I think that there's, uh, there's certainly a lot to be said about uh, wounds in terms of human experience, in, in, in psychic wounds. I write about psychic wounds. Zoot Suit was about a huge psychic mm -hmm. wound. The Zoot Suit riots. And, yeah. uh, and when we opened the play in, in 1978, it was addressing a wound that had been in Los Angeles for over 30 years, mm -hmm. 35 years. Mm -hmm. And that's where the audience flocked to see the play, right? Mm -hmm. Half a million people came to see it. And not just Chicanos. I mean, everybody. They, they felt the wound. And, and I, I certainly think that the theater can, can serve to exercise that kind of pain. Um, and it becomes a cathartic experience. So it's really important uh, that the theater continue to do that. And, and in a live fashion, too. I'm not, again, I'm a filmmaker, but I, I think films are useful to a point, and then the theater is also useful, you know, for more essential, more live events. And so um, the wound aspect is, is important. You know, it occurs to me that uh, we're all, 
we're all born at uh, at a crossroads, and you might say that okay, we're individuals, every one of us, and then our parents are uh, are two people, and so we come from them, and then our grandparents are four people, and our great grandparents are eight, and then sixteen, thirty-two, you know, and sixty-four, one twenty-eight. Mm-hmm. 256, 512, mm-hmm. 1024, huh? <laughs> and so forth, right? And yeah. it goes out like that. It pyramids outward. Mm-hmm. So at what point do you no longer deal with the pain, you know? Mm-hmm. At what point, I mean, do you say, okay, the pain of my great, 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 great grandparents no longer affect me? Uh, certainly, I think that if you're black, the the pain of the 16th generation removed from you is still present. It's still with you. And uh, certainly the pain of the Holocaust, you know, in Europe for Jews will stay for a while. One or two generations is not enough to remove it. As a matter of fact, if we deal with human history and religion, that pain goes back many generations. And by the same token, if you take that X in the opposite direction, go to your descendants, to your children and your your grandchildren, your great-grandchildren, again, it dissipates outward. And eventually your pain will no longer be part of them unless your pain happens to be the kind of pain that communicates its way uh, mm-hmm. for a long, long time. I would say that, the, just to add a couple of cents, it's, it's not necessarily the wounds that define us, but how we heal. And I think that's the commitment to a healing process, whether it's one generation or multiple generations, or one individual is the thing that's triumphant about the human spirit. I think in this particular play, you have this woman who goes has wounds. You have various family members suffering from these traumatic psychic wounds as well. But as a family, they choose to transcend those wounds and stay committed and commit to healing. And I think that's the one thing that's that's essential part of a beautiful thing about being human. We can, we can either succumb to something or we can rise above it. It seemed to me the most uh, central dramatic question with respect to Mama Chu was that how could it be that a woman would not give birth if she's pregnant and and she carries a mummified fetus for 60 years? How could that happen? What are the psychic links to that? And maybe the woman did it involuntarily, supposedly, but I don't think so. I think we, we are all conscious of, of at some level of what our bodies are doing, uh, even if they're developing a disease that eventually be fatal. Uh, it's there somewhere. Uh, but the fact is that with Mama Chu, here is a woman who refused to give birth. So that seems to me a powerful question. Why would a woman refuse to give birth when she's pregnant? And so that sort of opened up the whole play. You see, that, op- that wound, the wound that she felt when her, her husband and her family was taken from her, prevented her from giving birth to the mummified uh, deer, the baby in her. But at the same time, it didn't keep her from being a mother. So she had to gather all these children around her that were not her own, but emotionally they were, spiritually they were, and create a family, a surrogate family, so to speak. At least live with a reflection of her own family. Uh, and she lived a long time, too. That's another thing. You know, the 114 years is is, is part of revealed at the end of the play. But that's... That's not, uh, again, very far removed from from my family's history either. I have a, my uncle, one of my uncles had a, his mother lived to be 114. So it goes, uh, it goes into the future and into the past in that sense too. So the question then about Mama Chu's wound 
is also uh, inherent in in the story mm-hmm. and inherent in the the poetry, the image of the mummified deer. And mm. not giving birth. In yeah. some ways, she's protecting that child from the brutality of the world. She wanted to be born into slavery. Yeah, exactly. She, she states yeah. it yeah. at the end. Yeah. She asked God, don't let this child be born into slavery. Mm-hmm. She said, take my life, but don't let this child be born into slavery. So God did not take her life. He just mummified the fetus. So uh, God is a trickster also. See? So so again, for some reason, Mama Chu was kept alive so she could become this mother to, to all these children around her. So um, all of these are questions that relate to the mysteries of life itself, I think, and, but the ironies. And, um, and so again, it, uh, it does relate to your question about the wound, but it, it also relates to Kinan's point about the healing, I think, that mm. uh, how do you heal from these wounds? You know, what, what Kinan just said about healing and what you echoed, Luis, uh, reminds me of a line near the end of the play where the, the, the main character, Armida, says, um, and I'm going to skip a little bit here so as not to give away too much, but, dear God, is it so outrageous to believe, dot, 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 that our entire family history is but the struggle to find our birth passage to a new world, that something sacred and alive might come from all the suffering? Yeah. Yeah, and I, and I think again it, that that addresses the issue of the sacrifice. Uh, I think of uh, particularly within the immigrant experience of all the people that came before us. A lot of us in our comfort now uh, are main, maybe not uh, are aware, you know, what our mm-hmm. relatives mm-hmm. went through. And I'm not that far removed because I live the poverty, so I I know what my parents and grandparents went through, and I'll I'll, I'll be eternally grateful to them for making the trek, for crossing the border, you know. And mm-hmm. and as people are crossing now, I mean, as people are trying to get uh, to a better world in their own places, where, wherever they are. And um, and I think you need to be grateful for that and be acknowledge that in your own self uh, toward your people, whoever they were and what they did. And uh, it's a tough life. I've been surprised over the years that uh, to learn that uh, life is a rough road to hoe for everybody. It's not just uh, Chicanos, you know, it's everybody. And um, then we're all mortal on top of that. So so let's be more aware, really, of, of how we got to, to where we are. And and by the same token, then uh, uh, try to return the favor. Hmm. Um, Luis, you, be, you began El Teatro Campesino in 1965, yep. uh, and it was a form of political agitation, political organizing. I mean, it was it really had a political aim <laughs> at that point. It wasn't just entertainment. I went to Cesar Chavez, yeah, and I, I pitched him the idea for a farm workers' theater of by and for farm workers. Mm-hmm. And uh, and he told me, uh, fine. He said, uh, but you know, there's no first thing he said. There's no money to do theater in Delano. He said, <laughs> this um, is Delano, and, California. Yeah, exactly yeah. where the strike was happening. He said, there's no. There are no actors in Delano, and and there's no stage in Delano, and uh, there isn't even any time to rehearse. He says we, we're on the picket line night and day. You still want to try it? And I said absolutely. <laughs> what an opportunity, uh, because it was, um, it was the spirit, you know, of this movement that was happening in the strike that attracted me to begin with, and I, I wanted to to help. And so El Teatro Comisino was literally born on the picket lines. And it was a way to attract the attention of the scabs in the fields, the strike breakers, to get them out and to join the union. And so we hopped on top of cars and on top of flatbed trucks, used signs to attract their attention. 
we had all day out there, you know, because we were picketing all over. It's a thousand square miles of vineyards in the southern San Joaquin Valley. So we were there to organize uh, in our own way. And after a while, we started performing in the union uh, meetings, uh, the weekly Friday meetings. And our purpose really was to raise the spirit of the strikers. And Caesar would uh, keep us until the very end of the meeting would be the last bit of business. And it was always an entertainment that people wanted to see. We'd sing the songs and do the actos. And it was our comedy that, that people enjoyed because it was always relevant to the strike. And and so uh, we perform in this tiny little space. It was uh, The Union Hall was a tiny little place, fit perhaps 50 people at the beginning with another 50 outside waiting. So we'd push the kids aside and perform, you know, in a tiny little area, one or two-man bits and pieces. And eventually, when we moved to Filipino Hall, because half the strikers were Filipino, we we had a much larger space and we were able to perform. We grew organically within the strike, and uh, we got theatrical uh, uh, through our politics. And uh, the politics was never uh, an accidental. It was very deliberate. You know, we were agitprop, and uh, very deliberately so, very proudly so. And the actors were, in fact, uh, to begin with, farm workers, all of them. Some of them couldn't even read and write, so we had to improvise everything. Uh, but I was very uh, happy that uh, the theater was useful in that way because I always felt it had to have some kind of utility. You know, we weren't just there to entertain. We were there to inspire. We were there to mm-hmm. lift spirits. And also eventually to teach. So these became little learning plays uh, about things that perhaps the strikers didn't quite understand. It took a little bit of doing to, for them to grasp the notion of a boycott. How, do, what is, how does a boycott work? Uh, so we had pieces about that. It took a little doing for them to understand what a union contract was. I mean, everybody understands what a contract is, but what are the provisions, you know? What is seniority all about? What, what is all of that, you know? But all of that was dramatized by the Teatro Campesino and put before the workers so that they understood it. And it really was a was a classic example of how the theater becomes a learning instrument. Mm. How it, And if the workers themselves do it, even better, because everybody's watching their cohorts doing the dramatization. So, so I wanted to ask you both, do you think the mission uh, of your theatrical work is the same now as it was then? Uh, oh, absolutely. I think uh, when we talk specifically about uh, El Teatro Campesino, it's still a theater dedicated to creating social change. So the idea that theater is, serves a much grander, larger purpose is something that's rooted in everything we do. Um, part of what teaching uh, a class on Chicano theater at UC Santa Cruz is about exploring this notion of theater as a generator of community and also as a creator of social change. Hmm. And because the roots of Chicano Teatro stem from uh, this political moment in time, it's built into the DNA of the art form itself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we are based in San Juan Bautista, have been there since 1971, chose it. We chose it as our permanent home. Uh, I, I love the, the atmosphere, the historical, cultural atmosphere of San Juan, but also the fact that it was in trouble. It, it, uh, San Juan is not a, pros- uh, a prosperous town. It's been in trouble since 1868, <laughs> when the Southern Pacific bypassed it and created Hollister. Wow. Uh, San Juan Bautista used to be part of Monterey County, uh, but it's been part of San Benito County, which is one of the poorest counties in the state uh, since the 1870s or thereabout. But the the fact is that uh, we wanted to help the town. We wanted to preserve uh, the historical character. And at the same time, uh, be El Teatro Campesino. We were had many of opportunities to move to San Jose. They were, you know, really flirting with us for a long time. 
San Francisco claimed us for a while. Uh, Los Angeles claimed us for a while. People, a lot of people still don't know where we are, where we live, you know, particularly in other countries. But the fact is that uh, we wanted to stay true to our original goal, which was to be a theater of the farm worker and for the farm worker. I don't think that uh, the world in the foreseeable future will will lose the need to have farm workers. I think they're, they're always going to be farm workers. Somebody has to raise the food. I remember Caesar saying, if we don't have the farm workers, who will? And it seemed to me a, a very honest, very direct question. Hmm. Well, thank you both, Kenan and Luis Valdez. Thank you. Thank you very much. Luis Valdez is founding artistic director of El Teatro Campesino in San Juan Batista. Kenan Valdez is the producing artistic director of El Teatro, and he's a lecturer in the theater arts department at UC Santa Cruz, where he's currently directing his father's play, Mummified Deer. Performances start this Friday, February 25th, and run for two consecutive weekends at the UC Santa Cruz Theater Arts Center. Luis and Kenan Valdez will be giving special talks after two of the performances, February 26th and March 4th. You can get tickets and more information at santacruztickets.com, at the UCSC Ticket Office, and the Santa Cruz Civic Box Office. And you can learn more about El Teatro Campesino at their website, elteatrocampesino.com. You can also visit our website, 7thAvenueProject.com, to find out more about this program. I'm Robert Polly, your Rasquatchy host, saying so long until next week. <laughs> <laughs>